Turn our attention this morning to Daniel chapter 9. It'll take us a little bit to get there. We're going to look at a couple of other passages first. But this morning, we are beginning a new sermon series focused on the multicultural nature and the multicultural character of the kingdom of God. The implications for us as God's calling on our church. Let's pray for God's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, we come before You. We ask for an outpouring of Your Spirit, Lord, that You would open up our eyes to see our own sinfulness, our own need for Your grace, to have a deeper and a profound understanding of what the gospel requires. So, Lord, we ask that you would move in us this morning, we pray. Amen. Two summers ago at General Assembly, which is our annual denominational meeting, there's been something occurred that was the most powerful experience of the Holy Spirit I've ever observed, witnessed, or been a part of in my life. It was dealing with an action by our denomination calling for repentance for sins that we have committed or been complicit to in the area of racial reconciliation. I think that summer I was on the committee that was dealing with these things more specifically. We had 35 matters before the assembly that had come up from churches to Presbytery, which is the regional gathering of churches to the General Assembly. I believe we dealt with 34 of those issues, which some of them very contentious. We dealt with 34 of those issues in about six hours. When it came to the issue of racial reconciliation, it took us 14 hours. And then there was eight hours of floor debate in which we decided to push it off to this past summer. Immediately after that, a brother called up, stood up, and called for repentance. And for anyone who did not want to wait to repent another year but wanted to do so right now, they could do so. And so several hundred men, elders, pastors, got up and publicly repented of their sins, of things that they had done and things that they had failed to do in the areas of racial reconciliation and failure to advance the gospel to people of every tongue, tribe, and nation in their own community. Some of those are people in their 90s getting up and confessing their racial sins from decades ago. An incredible outpouring of God's Spirit in bringing about this repentance. This morning, we're going to examine our corporate repentance as a church and as a denomination. But before we get there, I want us to understand biblically how Scripture calls us as a body to repent. And that's what we're going to begin with. First thing we need to understand about this is that the Bible, how the Bible deals with God's people is that he always deals with us both as a we and as a me. He deals with us individually and corporately. He deals with us personally, and he deals with us communally. Evangelical Christianity has a very strong emphasis on, and understandably so, on the need for personal salvation, for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That you cannot be saved from your sin, from your misery. You cannot have healing for the brokenness in your life without a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You cannot rely on the faith of your parents. You cannot rely on the faith of your church. You're not a Christian because you go to church. You're not a Christian because your family goes to church. The only reason why you are a Christian is because you individually have converted and individually have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
And indeed, Scripture makes this emphasis very clear. We saw this in David, when David sinned and sinned against the whole country, and the whole country experienced the consequences of his sin. Yet in David's prayer of confession, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned. David acknowledges and accepts full responsibility for his individual personal sin in each one of us. He needs to accept full responsibility without excuse, without blaming for the things that we have done wrong and to accept responsibility for our own sin, confess that to the Lord, and trust in Jesus Christ for his forgiveness and his restoration. That's not only David in the Psalms, but also at Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Peter speaking to the Jewish people who had a very strong identity as a community, a very strong corporate identity. After Peter finished preaching, the text says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Because the people of God were always called to respond as a group. What shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you. In the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A communal question is asked, what do we need to do? And Peter is very specific of the individual need for relationship with Jesus Christ. And so there's a very strong emphasis on that. But Scripture also makes an equally strong emphasis on the communal aspect. That God deals with his people as a me, and he deals with us as a we. And quite frankly, American Christianity, in particular evangelical Christianity, is very weak in the corporate nature of our faith. And so, for example, in Peter, the Apostle Peter, talking to, the, to God's people, says this, But you, notice the corporate identification, the corporate grouping, the communal identity, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, you have a, a communal job, you are a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, you were scattered. Once you were not a people, but now you have been gathered. Now you are God's people. You are a corporate body, a corporate entity. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, in Jesus' own ministry, Jesus regularly preached and called for repentance from a wicked and unbelieving generation. The book of Revelation calls for entire churches to repent, irrespective of who was responsible for individual sins. Why? Because the individual members were part of the body, and the members were included in and accountable for the actions of themselves and of their church body and of their church leaders who they apparently did not hold accountable. Scripture makes clear that there are both sin, there are blessings and curses. There is sin and obedience both at an individual level and at a group level, at an individual level and a corporate level, at a personal level and at a communal level. So, for example, there are great blessings to being a member of a church that is following the Lord and the Holy Spirit is at work at. There are great blessings for the body in those regards. But... Scripture also makes very clear that there are many examples in Scripture of God-fearing, Jesus-loving believers who are accountable for sins that they personally did not commit. And they are accountable for those sins because of a shared identity, and they are bound by a covenant. Israelites, 
suffered God's judgment, exile, affliction, death, because of, the corp- because of their covenantal identity, because of the corporate body which they were a part of. And included in people who received God's judgment on that were righteous people who had saving faith and who fought against the godlessness of their age for which the people were going to get judged for. That includes Ezra, Jeremiah, Daniel, Nehemiah, to name a few. God always deals with his people as a me and as a we. Now, what does this have to do with the issue of corporate repentance that our church and our denomination has done? Another pastor, a friend of mine named Duke Kwan, gives this very astute assessment. He says this, It is proper to repent for sins of those with whom you share a covenantal identity. It is proper for you to repent of sins with whom you are a part of that group. Why? Not because God credits other individuals' sins to you individually, but because God holds the covenant community responsible for their collective sins collectively. God does not credit other individuals' sins to you individually, but he holds the covenant community responsible for their collective sins collectively, of which you are individually a part of. What does this mean? It's to understand first that God deals with us as a we and as a me. Also, what that means is that we must repent of our sins both personally and communally. Communally. And we're going to focus here on Daniel chapter 9 for a few moments. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is uh, praying a prayer of confession. Jeremiah, had their people of God are in exile. Daniel's um, in in the capital in exile. They are, Jeremiah had prophesied that after 70 years, God's people would be restored, that 70 years is approaching, and God's people haven't been restored. And Daniel prays this prayer. This is what he prays. I turn my face to the Lord God seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying... Now, notice two things here. Notice the me and we dynamic, and notice what specifically he is confessing. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, Turning aside from your commandments and rules, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven us because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. rest of Daniel continues through this prayer. Daniel chapter 9 continues voicing these concerns that Daniel utters. Now, you might read this and think, wait a second, who is confessing this sin? I mean, who is this terrible, awful, disobedient, godless person who has walked away from the living God? Who is this person that is confessing these sins? Is this not Daniel? Is this not Daniel of Daniel in the lion's den? 
Daniel, when whom the king issued an unchangeable edict that all would have to pray to the king and not to their own God, otherwise be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel, the one who would not do so but continued to pray to the Lord and was immediately thrown into the lion's den. Is this not Daniel, the devoted prayer warrior who earnestly prayed to God despite the edict? Is this not Daniel, whose integrity and purity and unwavering conviction in the face of opposition never swayed? How can Daniel say, O Lord, we have sinned. If there is anyone who has a right to exclude himself from confession, if there is anyone who has a right to be able to say, not me, O Lord, but your people, but my people have sinned, not me, O Lord, but my people have done wrong, if anybody could do that, surely it was Daniel. But Daniel understood that God deals with his people as a me and as a we. Daniel understood that he was a part of the whole. And because the whole was guilty, he too was personally guilty. That he was identified with the people of God, and he understood that God holds the covenant community responsible for their collective sins collectively. Specific things that Daniel confessed, that they've turned away from God's his commands and his laws. They have not listened to God's servants, the prophets. Not only have they not listened, but they have not obeyed God's servants and the prophets. They have transgressed the law. Transgressions are the really bad sins. It's the sins that churchgoers commit. It's those who know the law, who know it, they're not ignorant of it, but they know what God requires, and they step over the line anyway. They have transgressed the law. They have not sought the favor of the Lord their God by turning from their sins and giving attention to this truth. All these things Daniel confesses not only on behalf of the people, but behalf of himself. Because not only did he identify with the people communally, but also Daniel recognizes that there are areas in his life when he wasn't true to these things either. Let me give you another example of communal prayer. If you've ever prayed the Lord's Prayer, you pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. What do you mean when you pray that? Well, I mean, really, I mean, forgive me my sins, but since we're all saying it together, we have to say, forgive us our sins. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. I think what Jesus meant was what he said. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, if I individually have sin that need to be repented of, does that fit in the, in the group? Absolutely. But he's calling saying, forgive us our sins. Why? Because they're my sins too. And if you think about this, say, well, it's really just a group thing. It really means individually. Let me give you a different example. There are biblical examples of communal prayers that are stated individually. In fact, the entire evangelical church practices them quite often. Have you ever been a part of a church that has had an altar call, a vacation Bible school that has an altar call? What is said? Everybody bow your heads, repeat after me. I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I'm a sinner. I've trusted that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the grave to forgive me for my sins. It is an individual prayer stated communally. The Lord's Prayer is a communal prayer stated communally. Why? Because confession is both for me and for we. And we must repent both personally and communally. And what that means specifically as to what has happened this summer in our church and our denomination is that we must repent for our sins. 
you turn in your discussion guide to the inside, I'm going to walk through this document that's before you. What happened here is that this past summer, our denomination passed what's called an overture. That's just how things move up to, to, for the denomination as a whole to act on it. And this overture is entitled, For the Advancement of the Gospel, Pursuing Racial Reconciliation and the Advancement of the Gospel. This came up a year ago, decided that it was going to be worked on for a year, and brought back. There were dozens of versions of this same overture that was brought back from the whole for the denomination to act on, calling for corporate repentance. Incidentally, one of those presbyteries that passed called the denomination to a whole for their sins in the civil rights era was a presbytery, a group of churches, that was predominantly Korean. And they were, that presbytery, as predominantly as Korean, was con- corporately confessing the sins of their white brothers and sisters. Why? Because they were identified with them as a part of our denomination. This particular version that is before you, what happened was that there was a church in our presbytery that took it, modified it some, gave it to our presbytery to act on so it would go up to the next level. When it was at our presbytery, it was referred to a specific, a smaller committee to refine it and to work on it. There were five of us on that committee. I was one of those five. I had a very small part, but nonetheless, I was on it. Um, some of the language in here that you have here is specifically mine. That, one, that version so happened to be the one version that the denomination as a whole acted upon and that the whole denomination followed through with. It was made a couple more changes. So as we're going through this, this isn't just something that was written by them. This was something that was written by me. I was not the principal drafter of it, but this is, um, I'm a contributor, direct contributor what's, to what's stated here. So we're going to go through this, and I'm going to give some context to explain what happens as our church and denomination has corporately confessed, recognized, and repented of their sins. Let's start in the second paragraph. Whereas in 1973, the message to all the churches, the founding generation of the Presbyterian Church in America expressly declared, declared our denomination to be the continuing church of the Presbyterian Church in the United States, saying, we have called ourselves continuing Presbyterians because we seek to continue the faith of the founding fathers in that church. Now, history here. The founding document of the PCA was a document letter entitled Message to All the Churches. A little more than 100 years before, in 1861, when the Northern and during the Civil War, all denominations across the United States split into Northern and Southern denominations across the board because of the Civil War. The Southern Presbyterian Church, in founding, founded themselves in, with an opening document called The Message to All the Churches. And in particular, they committed themselves to three things. The authority and errancy of Scripture, doctrinal fidelity, and obedience to the Great Commission. When the PCA was started in 1973, very not coincidentally, entitled the same declaration, The Message to All the Churches. The, uh, the one a century before was voted on on December 4th, 1861, and the PCA, our denomination, was founded on December 4th, 1973, which was not done coincidentally. That there was a direct continuation to the founding faith of the churches that have gone before. Next paragraph. Whereas the formation and identity of the PCA was shaped through the honorable and courageous commitment of our founding denominational leaders and churches to be faithful to the scriptures and doctrine and in practice, and these convictions remain with us today. If you are an evangelical Christian, 
If you like 90% of Cornerstone, this is your first Presbyterian church you've ever been connected to. Um, all of us are indebted to what these founding people did. Across denominations, whether you're, if you are from a Bible-believing church, Methodist, Episcopalian, non-denominational, Baptist, independent Baptist, what have you, the founding generation within the, of Presbyterian leaders ardently fought against the erosion of biblical truth in their day, and American Christianity stands to benefit from the, the, the contribution that these, that these pastors and elders made at that time, let alone our own specific denomination. Whereas, during the civil rights period, at the same time that that courageous leadership happened, there were founding denominational leaders in churches who not only failed to pursue racial reconciliation, Paul's, In 1963, according to a Gallup poll, two-thirds of white people in America stated that blacks and whites were treated equally, and 90% of white people in America said that blacks had the exact same educational opportunities as white people, who not only failed to pursue racial reconciliation, but also actively worked against it in both church and society through sinful practices, such as the segregation of worshipers by race, the exclusion of persons from church membership on the basis of race, one of our sister churches in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, the elders formed arms, linked arms outside of the church to prevent any black people from entering the doors of the congregation on a Sunday morning. The exclusion of churches or elders from membership in presbyteries on the basis of race. The teaching that the Bible sanctions racial segregation and discourages interracial marriage the participation in and defense of white supremacist organizations, and the failure to live out the gospel imperative that love does no wrong to a, la- to a neighbor. Now I'm going to read, about to read some very specific things. I want you to know, obviously this is dealing with our own particular history, but the things that I'm sharing were true of evangelical churches across America, across denominations, especially in the South, and was the guilt particular challenge within the North, is that the North, even when churches were reunited, the Northern churches did nothing. They did nothing. So, here is some specific things. A man by the name of Dr. Patterson, the chair of the steering committee to help form the denomination, and who was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church, Jackson, Mississippi, had elders of the church who were members of KKK front groups. First Presbyterian Church, Jackson, denied African Americans membership in their church. Also, by the way, First Presbyterian has done a remarkable job. They have made an open letter with full disclosure and confession and repentance of everything that they could identify that their church has been involved in, seeking repentance and all these things. But the year after the Civil Rights Act was passed, they founded their own Christian day school, which was not a coincidence because the Civil Rights Act made it explicit that the school segregation was now federally illegal. And so what happened in America, particularly through Bible-believing churches, is that you had the explosion of private Christian education beginning in the 50s and 60s. Why? Because wealthy white people, people of means, did not want their kids in the public school system, which Christians helped to found, They did not want their kids in the public school system where they would have to be educated with African Americans and other minorities. And so what the churches did is they started private Christian schools for the advancement of the gospel and also conveniently priced the tuition of those schools out of the reach of any minority in their community. And if you are familiar with private Christian schools, if you you could look back, there is an explosion of them during the civil rights era. 
at this time. Two summers ago, at the General Assembly, this, two summers ago, a man by the name of Dr. Jim Baird, I played the video for you last year, two, one of the two remaining founding members of the PCA, who was the pastor at First Presbyterian Church, Jackson, Mississippi, following Dr. Patterson, admitted to our whole denomination that when he founded the PCA, he said this. He said, were we racist? No. We founded the PCA for three reasons. Because of a commitment to the Word of God. To be true to the theology of Scripture and to be doctrinally pure. And number three, to be obedient to the Great Commission. Were we racist? No. But we did Nothing to help our African-American brothers and sisters during that period. An incredible moment. Not only that, but a man by the name of Morton Smith, who is still alive today, actively taught, support, president of a seminary in the South that has not renounced his positions, openly taught that segregation and interracial marriage was indeed wrong, and he argued for the basis that interracial marriage was wrong on the basis of Genesis 1 and 2 in the account of the separation of the animals as why interracial marriage is wrong. A mentor, friend, colleague, professor of mine who's now the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia, whose church was where the Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States was founded, issued a very broad statement of, and their elders issued a very broad statement of corporate repentance for the actions of their church. And in part, he preached a sermon on it stating this last year, and I quote, he said, not only did I grow up in the Southern Presbyterian Church, but I am also the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia, where that denomination was founded in 1861. While I cannot speak to all the motives for all the Presbyterians, Presbyterians in the antebellum South, I can say with some authority what our pastor and members were thinking at the time. Ostensibly, they were protesting against governmental interference in the church's business. That point in and of itself may have been valid. But in our particular case as a congregation, we were opposing governmental intervention which threatened our members holding the slaves who sat in the second-story balcony of our sanctuary. But the issue was governmental intervention. Continue. Eight months before First Presbyterian hosted the founding assembly of the Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States, our pastor Joseph Ruggles preached, Wilson preached a sermon on the mutual relation of masters and slaves as taught in the Bible. In it, Wilson argued that slavery was not only sanctioned by both the utterance and silence of Scripture, a point which I completely and vehemently disagree with personally, but also a prime conservator of the civilization of the world, that slavery was necessary for the civilization of the world, besides being one of the colored man's foremost sources of blessing, that he's arguing that the best thing that could happen for an African-American is for him to be enslaved, enslaved because that is the vehicle for his foremost source of blessing. Continues, Benjamin Morgan Palmer, pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in New Orleans, was elected moderator of that first assembly. That same year, in his Thanksgiving sermon the year before, he alerted his people to an emergency, quote, a threat against, quote, the providential trust. What was that threat? I answer, he says. 
that it is to conserve and to perpetuate the institution of domestic slavery as now existing. And he saw that as the prime, uh, the chief opposition to Bible-believing churches in America. My friend George Robertson gives this comment. He says, every week, Wilson's pulpit, which he climbs and preaches out of every Sunday, and Palmer's chair, which is present in their sanctuary where the denomination was founded. Every week, Wilson's pulpit and Palmer's chair remind me of three things. First, I must not be self-righteous in judging men's pasts. I have blinders, too, that will surely necessitate the repentance of my children's children. Secondly, the God who endured with my forefathers only because of Jesus Christ must endure with me as well. Thirdly, I must live in a posture of repentance, daily asking the Spirit to free me from conformity to my age and transform my life by the renewing of my mind. Otherwise, I will inevitably repeat equally heinous words and actions as my forefathers did. Next paragraph. Whereas the vestiges of these sins continue to affect our denomination to this day and significantly hinder efforts for reconciliation with our African-American and other minority brothers and sisters, particularly in communities that, ha that have a longer history, many of different ethnicities and cultures say, I'm not willing to join a white denomination that has not owned its past. It's a present obstacle that we face. Hinder efforts of reconciliation with African Americans and other minority brothers and sisters. How? By often refusing to lay down our own cultural preferences so that these brothers and sisters might feel more welcome in our churches. Now, almost every church... Every white church would say, we would love to have diversity in our church. We would love for people of different backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures to come by a part of our church as long as they act like white people. There is a big difference between being multi-ethnic and multicultural. And you can be multi-ethnic and monocultural. You can be multi-ethnic and culturally oppressive to people who are there as God-fearing believers. By not sufficiently encouraging minority culture brothers into leadership within our General Assembly, committees, agencies, and churches, as evidenced by our history, every person, we much prefer PLUs, you know, that we much prefer people like us are in leadership than people who are different than us. And by failing to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters concerning racial sins and personal bigotry. The issue was, most of these things occurred before the founding of the PCA. However, when churches were brought in, they were not disciplined, and subsequent racist actions were not dealt with as our denomination should. And finally, failing to learn to do good, seek justice, and correct oppression. Next paragraph. Whereas the 30th General Assembly adopted a resolution, that is 13 years ago, a resolution on racial reconciliation that confessed heinous sins connected with unbiblical forms of servitude, but did not deal specifically with the racial sins during the more recent civil rights period, which betrayed the visible unity of all believers in Christ, the command to love our neighbors as ourselves, and the image of God in all people. Next paragraph. Whereas God has once more given the PCA a gracious opportunity to show the beauty, grace, and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ through confession 
and through the fruits of repentance, such as formative and corrective discipline for racial sins, which is namely, quite frankly, we have some junk that we need to deal with and that people in our denomination are dealing with, an understanding and appreciation of minority cultures, and in intentionally establishing interracial friendships and partnerships inside and outside of our denomination. If you are a Christian, if you are not Jewish, why are you a Christian? The reason, in part, is because at some point, somebody crossed the cultural barrier. At some point, somebody was willing to reach out to somebody different than themselves and to go through the tensions and the awkwardness and the difficulty and the cultural misunderstanding. At some point, someone was willing to do that so that you might know the hope of Jesus Christ. Next phrase. By renewing our church's commitment to develop minority leadership at the congregational, presbyterian, denominational levels. It's not going to happen without intentionality. And encouraging a denomination-wide vision for and commitment to a more racially and ethnically diverse church in obedience to the Great Commission. And... Therefore, be it resolved that the 44th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of corporate and historical sins, including those committed during the civil rights area and continuing racial sins of ourselves and our fathers, such as the segregation of worshipers by race, the exclusion of persons from church membership on the basis of race, the exclusion of churches or elder from the membership in the presbyteries on the basis of race, the teaching that the Bible sanctions racial segregation and discourages interracial marriage, the participation of and defense of white supremacist organizations, and the failure to live out the gospel imperative that love does no wrong to a neighbor. Be it further resolved that this General Assembly does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of past racial failures to love brothers and sisters from minority cultures in accordance with what the gospel requires. And over the next several weeks, this is what we're going to be focusing on. Not political correctness, not political issues in the news. What we're going to be focusing on is our obedience to what the gospel of Jesus Christ requires. As well, as it continues, as our failure to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters concerning racial sins and personal bigotry. How many of us have been silent when a person of another race was disparaged or mocked, ridiculed, or condemned? How many of us have made racial jokes because we could get a good laugh from another person? And failing to learn to do good, seek justice, and correct oppression. Be it further resolved that the General Assembly praises and recommits itself to the gospel task of racial reconciliation, diligently seeking effective courses of action to further that goal with humility, sincerity, and zeal for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel. And be it further resolved that the General Assembly urges the congregation and presbyteries of the PCA to make this resolution known to their members in order that they may prayerfully confess their own racial sins as led by the Spirit and strive towards racial reconciliation for the advancement of the gospel, the love of Christ, and the glory of God. Last two paragraphs deal with some technical matters. Let me personalize this. My grandparents immigrated from Sweden. 
They were dairy farmers and a seamstress. As new immigrants, they were substantially, new immigrants in upstate Pennsylvania, they were substantially unaware of any of these dynamics as new Americans. For me personally, I, in high school, I had one other white friend. My high school was less than 25% white. I wasn't alive during Jim Crow. I wasn't around during the founding of the PCA. In fact, the PCA wasn't around when many of the things listed here occurred. I did not bar African Americans from any church. I did not support or preach in support of segregation. Nor have I ever participated in any sort of white supremacist organization. But, as an evangelical Christian, and it applies that broadly, as an evangelical Christian, as a member of a Presbyterian church, as a member of a Presbyterian church that proudly claims its continuity with the Southern Presbyterian church, And as an individual Christian, I, in our denomination, have and do repent of our racial sins, both in the things that have been committed and in our failure to do what the gospel calls us to and what the gospel requires. Not only that. But I, as a majority culture, American Christian, I have not been obedient to what the gospel requires. I have often refused to lay down my own cultural preferences so that brothers and sisters of other cultures might feel more welcome in this church. I have not confronted people in their racial sins and transgressions. And when there are moments when I think about whether or not I'm guilty, whether or not the sins of others are my sins, I'm reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ who never sinned and yet who voluntarily identified himself with us. Who did not hesitate to be numbered with us and willingly took our sin upon himself so that we could be reconciled to God and thereby that there would be a way for the renations to be reconciled with each other, and so that the good news of the hope of our Heavenly Father and His grace and mercy would extend to people of every tongue, tribe, race, and nation. So what I'm asking you to do this week is that you would take this document that I've given to you, that you would parse over it, that you would reflect upon it, 
and see where you yourself need to confess. And when you come across something that's difficult, that's abhorrent, don't scoff at it. But rather say, how have I done similarly? Or, and if you say, you know what, I really haven't done that, then the question is, what is the opposite thing? If you haven't committed that transgression, what is the opposite thing? If you haven't excluded people from membership of a church, how have you pursued people to be members of a church who are of a different race? What is the opposite, and how have I done that? And so as we journey over the next couple weeks, and specifically today, let us repent. Let us repent for the things we have done. And let us repent for what we have failed to do that the gospel calls us to. And let us recommit ourselves to the task of advancing the gospel to people of every race, ethnicity, and class. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, your people, come before you. And Lord, I confess to you that I have not loved others as I wanted to be loved. I have not extended to others the same freedom of preference that I demand for myself. I have not confronted other people when they've made racial jokes and racial slurs. I've not pursued people who are different from me because it would make me feel uncomfortable. And Lord, there are many more. And so, Lord, we confess these things. We recognize these things. And Lord, we repent of these sins. And Lord, we would ask that you would send your spirit that your spirit would work in us to make us obedient to the great commission, that the one thing that defines us is not our race, not our politics, not our wealth, but that the one thing defines us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would not be called white Christians, wealthy Christians, Republican Christians, Democratic Christians, cornerstone Christians, that we would be called, like the church in Antioch, Christ followers because it was the only thing that could identify such a diverse group of believers. And so, Lord, we ask for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit to make us obedient to the Great Commission, that we would reach Southern Maryland and the world for Jesus Christ, that this church, Lord, by your Spirit, would reflect the kingdom of God, that you would make this place and worship on a Sunday morning a foretaste of your kingdom where people of every tongue, tribe, and race worship you and bow down before you and give you praise because you are our heavenly Father. And you, Lord, have made all of us brothers and sisters adopted into your family. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our Reconciler. Amen.